The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God. We are in Romans. We're doing a review of Romans. We finished up the verse-by-verse study through Romans a while back and have been doing our review, which has been, I think, extremely valuable because we had so much we covered in Romans. It's very important to go back and remind ourselves of all that we learned during the study. We're almost done with a section in Romans that talks about Israel, chapters 9 through 11. Pick back up where we left off uh, this morning and, uh, and make progress from there. We'll see how far we get, but we might very well wrap up that section on Israel and then be ready to look at a discussion on the church. We'll see. That's up to the Holy Spirit, not me. Before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. Confessing sins if necessary, but also taking the time to quiet our minds and to submit ourselves humbly before the Holy Spirit and His ministry because He's the one who helps us understand the truth and humbly submitting ourselves to the eternal truth of God's Word, shall we pray. Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that my wife and I had to take a vacation. I thank you for the folks that were here last Sunday for the service while we were remote. I thank you for the opportunity we have once again to look into the truth of your word We live in a world that is so full of deception and lies, perversion of the truth, all kinds of garbage that really just makes us sick to the stomach, honestly. But we are thankful that when we come to your word, we can find out what truth really is. We can learn what is true. And it is such a blessing to be able to have that truth, that measuring line by which we can gauge everything else that we we encounter in our lives, that plumb line that does never, never uh, gives us a distorted view of reality. It always shows us what is really true. So this morning as we study your word, we pray that you'll help us to focus in on what it is that it's teaching us, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right. This is where we left off. We are in the middle of a section, uh, Romans 11, uh, 25 through 32. Uh, We already looked at verses 25 through 27, and now we're picking back up in verse 28. Regarding the gospel, they are subjected to hostility for your sake, but regarding God's choice, they are the objects of his love. Remember, we're talking about Israel here. They are the objects of his love for the sake of the patriarchs, for the things bestowed by grace and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but in the present time have been shown mercy by means of their disobedience, so they have been disobedient in the present time as well. 
in order that by means of the mercy shown to you, they might be shown mercy as well. For God has locked up all in, the, in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. Let's look at some principles regarding that. T- today we must view Israel from two perspectives. Two perspectives. First of all, regarding the present stewardship of the church, they are subjected to hostility from God as their hearts have been partially hardened. We've already looked at that idea. God did not close up their hearts so that no one could believe. But there is a partial hardening of their hearts. And remember, that partial hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people is not just some random act by God. Remember, they hardened their own hearts. They disobeyed. They rebelled. Uh, They pushed against God in so many ways. It's amazing how much he put up with, to be honest with you. Uh, But eventually, uh, as we like to say, eventually enough was enough. And uh, we know what happened there. We know that the captivities took place, both the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. And then there was a you know, a restoration that took place. But then look what happened as we fast forward down the timeline and we get to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appearing on the earth, the Messiah, the anointed one appearing on the earth, coming to his people. And what did they do? Uh, They rejected him. They rejected. I'm not saying every individual did, but as a nation, they did. The leaders of the nation of Israel rejected him as the Messiah and that hardening of their hearts against him uh, brought on this partial hardening that we see today. Now, the, it's a, it's a, if you think about it, the partial hardening is a grace thing because God has hardened their hearts in such a way that they still are, they're, they're still capable of believing. It's not as though he's closed up their hearts completely. There's a partial hardening. Some will believe, but they have been subject, subjected to the hostility from God as their hearts have been partially hardened. Regarding the eternal plan of God, they are objects of God's love and an integral part of the future of his Alpha to Omega plan for the sake of the patriarchs who received his immutable promises. Think about that for a second. Those promises, just a second, those promises that were made are immutable. God's, God's immutable. Those promises are made on the basis of what? I'm talking about the unconditional ones. They were made on the basis of God and his character. So those promises are going to be fulfilled. He is faithful. He will fulfill them. So we have to understand that even though they're, they're under, currently under the hostility of God from the perspective of that partial hardening because of their rebellion, because of their rejection, but in the eternal plan of God, they're objects of his love and they're integral for the future of his Alpha to Omega plan. They will be key in the future dispensations. Yes, sir. Well, so that, yeah, I pointed that out before that if uh, the partial hardening of the heart also ensures that not every Jewish person would believe. I mean, think about what happens to the plan of God. If every single Jewish person today were to believe and then the rapture happens, there would be no Jews left on the earth. So how do you have a Jewish stewardship in the tribulation and the millennial kingdom if if there's no Jews left on the earth? So in a way, it's part of also the the process of God ensuring that there will be some but of course he desires that none would perish and all would come to the knowledge of the truth so he god would god would desire that jews would believe today would believe in jesus as the messiah but you know he does he's hardened their heart really mostly in response to their rebellion 
but it also serves to fulfill. Does that make sense? The call of God and the things bestowed by him in grace are irrevocable. We need to understand this. What does that mean, irrevocable? He's not going to take them back. <laughs> the call of God. Now, if you think about, like, let me give you an example. I believe that when I was, uh, when I was a young believer, I believe that I was called to be a pastor. And even though I took my own... Um, my own route through the wilderness, <laughs> right? <laughs> I eventually ended up uh, responding to that call and I ended up becoming a pastor. So, but his call didn't change, did it? Just because I went off into the weeds, his call didn't change. His call was still there. It was irrevocable. For Israel, this applies to all the benefits they enjoy as his chosen nation as well as future blessings, right? All, all of those things that God said about them are true, uh, you know, the benefits as his chosen people and so on. For the church, this applies to spiritual gifts as well as our heavenly calling in Christ. And as you can see, we're going to look at some verses here. First of all, Romans twelve six says, Since we have spiritual gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each gifted believer should actively function accordingly. If one has... The spiritual gift of prophecy, he should actively use that gift according to the proportion of his faith. By the way, this goes on. I could read on through the rest of this. We, we will look at that, by the way, not right now. But I want, what I want you to see is the very first part of this, 12.6a. Since we have spiritual gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each gifted believer should actively function accordingly, right? So we've been called in the sense of gifts being given to us. Uh, he has... He has granted to each of us different, different individuals have different giftedness, but we should respond to that accordingly. But we also have a heavenly calling in Christ. First Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brethren. And this is a passage I really like here. That there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I love this idea. The, the whole idea that's conveyed here in this passage is that God plucked out from the world not the choicest fruit according to worldly evaluation, but he chose the food. And by the way, there is some sarcasm in this passage, right? There is, there is some, this is dripping with sarcasm, right? So the world would evaluate us as fools. Amen? They, they say that we're foolish, small-minded, weak, pathetic people that have to have religion, all that kind of thing. So God has chosen what the world deems to be foolish to shame the wise, what they deem to be wise, right? Again, you've got to put it in the perspective of how the world sees things. 
The world sees us as foolish, and God chose us. He called us to shame the wise, what the world sees as wise. He chose the people that they see as weak. And again, that's what they say. They ascribe to us that we're weak. The weak to shame that which is strong. The things that are not to destroy or to put down, if you will, the things that are. And the whole point of it is, I'm okay with being an an are not, <laughs> you know, I'm okay with the, with that being the case because in God's plan, I am something, right? I am something. And so the world can think of us however they want to. All I really need to be concerned about is what God thinks of me. The world, the world's opinion of me does not matter. But notice what ends up coming out of this in the very last verse is if you really understand that perspective of things, then you realize that whatever I am, if I'm truly able to, for example, if I'm able to have a discussion with someone and as a fool in their eyes, I'm able to shame someone who thinks he's wise, how am I able to do that? Is it because of me or is it because of the Lord? It's because of the Lord. That's one of the things that you get out of this passage as well is that whatever we are, whatever we have, that is of value, whatever, whatever strength we have, whatever wisdom we have, whatever we have, it's of the Lord. And so you finish with verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because he gets all the credit. First uh, Corinthians 7, hang on just a second. Yeah, First Corinthians 7, 20 through 24. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Very important. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Now, what that, that sounds like, it sounds like that can't be true, right? That sounds like a statement that can't be true, but it is. Because we have great freedoms we have great freedoms in Christ. Amen? Great freedoms in Christ. At the same time, if we really are disciples, we are bondservants. And the world's view of things is that's antithetical. You can't have both. Yes, you can. That's what they don't understand is as a bondservant of Christ, I have incredible freedom as a bondservant. Notice what verse 23 says, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, we, we are to be Christ's slave, not slaves of men. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. By the way, when you read verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion, don't think just human rule and authority and power and dominion. Think angelic as well. <clears throat> and notice verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet 
and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, so the first 22 gives us two perspectives, all things in subjection under his feet. Again, that includes humanity. That includes angelic, all of that. And then the second half of the verse, and gave him as head over all things to the church. By the way, if I were translating that, that would be a capital C. That is the church universal, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we have a calling. We have, a, we have an unbelievable calling, actually. We have been called to a life that's beyond anything that we ever could have thought of or deserved or anything else. <clears throat> We've been called to live a life of royalty, people. <laughs> we are part of the royal family of God. Well, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you, uh, in the world's view, started out as a lowly peasant, right? It doesn't matter. Uh, we are all we are all called to a life of royalty in the family of God, and that's an amazing calling. And so we should live according to that. Uh, the unity of the spirit of the unity and bond of peace. We should all function uh, in in a unity. It's it be, can become difficult when some people are so far off the reservation today in terms of people that are part of the church. But we should strive for that unity, <clears throat> nonetheless. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as, as having already laid hold of it. Now, what is he talking about? The prize, right? The whatever it is. This is talking about accomplishments in the Christian life, this passage. If we back up. <clears throat> Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained these things or have already become complete, but I Press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I, all, I which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And bre- Christ Jesus, excuse me, brethren. I do not regard myself as having already laid hold of it, but I focus on forgetting what lies behind and striving forward to what lies ahead. I press on. Notice what it says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the life that He's been called to. All the things that are part of the call of God and the, the, what we have as, as a possibility in the Christian life. I, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's so much that's yet to be accomplished. There's so much that we can do for the Lord in this life. And we've been invited to do that. That's what the call is, an invitation. We've been invited to that kind of a life to accomplish all those things. And he says, you never stop pressing on toward that. It doesn't matter whatever you've accomplished in your spiritual walk. You press on. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 13. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. 
Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God, notice what it says, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We've, we've been invited into his kingdom. That, remember I said royalty? We've been invited into God's kingdom and glory. And of course, each of us who's placed our faith in Jesus as our Savior, we have accepted that invitation. But it goes on in verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Second Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. In other words, that's the whole thing. What, that, what you want to get out of that statement is God's called each and every one of us. And by the way, that calling is different for each one of us in terms of what, what he has for us to do, right? Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, the works which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. You've got to set up a, a work assignments that's for you. Again, that's one of the coolest things about God is that he has a, we have a personal relationship with him. He doesn't just throw a net over us and say, all right, here's what I have for you. He says, okay, you as an individual, I have work assignments for you. I have a, you've been called to a particular life. Now, are there things that are common among all of us as believers? Of course there are. There are things that all of us have been called to. For example, God's invited us to a life of fellowship. Can we break that fellowship? Yes, <laughs> and we do. But he's, we've been called to a life of fellowship, and that's common to every believer. We've been, all been called to a life of fellowship. But we've been called to particular things, and we can, if you notice what it says in verse 11, we can, we can live our lives in such a way that what we're doing is not worthy of that calling. That's what he says right there. He says, to this end, also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea is, look, you've been called to a, a life and there's a work of faith involved with power. Where does that power come from? It comes from God. Fulfill every desire for goodness. Well, that's really the idea of a, walking in a manner that's a godly life. And the ultimate end of that, the purpose of all of this is that in the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in us. Yes, ma'am. Yep. It's could be ministry, could be any it could be any kind of a ministry. I like to think of it as work assignments because what the reason I say that is when you say ministry, at that point people want to throw some sort of a thing like, well, I've been I've been called to be a pastor. I've been called to be an evangelist. I've been called to be a and they put labels on it. And in reality, this calling that Paul is talking about here in 2 Thessalonians is your work assignments, whatever they are. It could, be, it could be work assignments that you have while you're working on boilers, right? It could be. It could be. It's not. So you might, and when you think of a ministry, often people want to put it into categories, you know, like a church ministry of some kind. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about you individually have been invited to work assignments. It could be, you know, for example, 
you were invited to have a work assignment to lead the ladies' Bible study while we were on vacation. That was a work assignment that was given for you to do. Now, did you do it in a manner worthy? I hope so. And that, but that seems like it's not. So that's not a ministry, but it's a work assignment. It's what God's called you to do. So that's what we want to look at. Uh, every one of us has opportunities to fulfill that calling in the various work assignments that we have every single day. Now, can it come in the form of a ministry? Absolutely. Absolutely. So wouldn't you say that part of my work assignment is a ministry here at this local church as the overseer of this church? Yes. It's a big part of my work assignments. Yes, sir. You could call everything I'm talking about priesthood activity. You absolutely could. That's another wonderful term for that. We are all priests, remember? And so we are engaged in priesthood activities. That's right. So what's a big part of a priesthood activity? Prayer, for example. That is a work assignment for each and every one of us. I believe my mom, for example, I believe the reason God still has her on this earth is because of her, her prayer. I think she's keeping me afloat with her prayer. You know, she does, does an amazing job of that. So there's a lot to be said for that, but, but you're absolutely right. That's a great way to describe it. Priestly activities. Yes, that's correct. I like that. That's a very good way to put it. Second uh, Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now, so we've been called, we've been called to salvation. Amen. We've been called to salvation. Uh, all of us were invited to believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But notice that... When, I think it's very important to look at the terminology there. Not according to our works. That's human effort. That's human good. Right? It's according to his own purpose and grace. So when we are functioning, even in the, in the Christian life, beyond just accepting Jesus as our Savior, beyond our own salvation, when we're functioning in the Christian life, it's not about our works. It's about the works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. His works. His power. His wisdom, that's what it's all about. So don't get caught up in your own, your own activities. Remember what God is doing. Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It goes on beyond all that. Think about that for a second. It kind of goes back to, to what uh, Dave mentioned, the idea he is our high priest. We are all operating in priestly functions in this dispensation. God's plan for Israel, including their future restored stewardship, is recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. Here we need what we remember is not only God's plan for Israel in the past, but God's plan for Israel in their future restored stewardship is recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. I think it's interesting as we've been reading through some of the books of the Bible we've been reading recently in our two-year reading plan, we see a restoration that took place Back then, the idea that they were taken into captivity in Assyria by Assyria and also Babylon, and then after the 70 years, which was promised, by the way, 
after the 70 years, which was promised, they were able to return and start rebuilding uh, the, the wall and start rebuilding the city and so on and so forth after Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians and so on. So they were able to do that. But when you read through those passages, all of a sudden you read about a passage and you go, wait a minute, that never got fulfilled back then when the restoration took place. Well, why is that? Because we have in those passages what is what at least Pastor Bob Bolander at Austin Bible Church coined the term a prophetic shift. So we had a we had a passage where we were talking about that restoration that took place back then, and all of a sudden, boom, we're not talking about that anymore. We're talking about a future restoration where Jesus Christ himself is going to be on the throne, reigning as king, and so on and so forth. And so you have these prophetic shifts that take place. But it's all recorded in there. All of that's in there. You can find out all about it. If you want to learn about Israel's future, you can actually learn a whole lot about it in the Old Testament, can't you? It's there. It's recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. God's plan for the Jewish people to be part of the church today was never revealed in the Old Testament. The idea that there would be a stewardship that exists today that would be made up of both people who were born Jews and born Gentiles that would be part of a body of believers where there is no Jew or Gentile, the idea that there would be a unique and totally uh, believer-based stewardship that would exist in, in the time, God's timeline was never revealed in the Old Testament. And so that Jews could be part of this was, was a mystery was never revealed. However, God, who is the Alpha and the Omega, has always had a plan which included Israel and the church. This is what you need to understand is that it's not a matter of uh, plan B. Isaiah 41, 4 says, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. What does that say? What is he saying there? <laughs> The first and the last. That in the in the Greek, that's the Alpha and the Omega, right? First and the last. And then he says, when I say he says, I am He. That's the I am, the eternal nature of God. So, what does it say? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. He's the one who's been doing this all along. Isaiah forty three eight through thirteen. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together. So that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare and proclaim to us former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. You are what my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Again, that's the I am. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? That, of course, is sovereignty, omnipotence, all that encapsulated. What, what are we saying there? He He's the, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Eternal One. He has declared it, and it will be so. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare that to them 
the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Verse 8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. (laughs) I love that. I know of none. Uh, And so if he doesn't know about it, how could anybody else? Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And who, who can make that claim other than Jesus Christ himself? Who can say that other than Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the only one who could say that. The only one. Revelation 22:13. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God has always had a plan. This idea of the I am, the eternality of God, the idea of the Alpha and the Omega, all of that says, you know what? This is not a plan B. This was part of the plan from the beginning. It always was part of the plan. Just because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament doesn't mean it's a plan B. It just was never revealed. It was a mystery. Revealed as part of the church age doctrines. Israel has been locked up in disobedience so that they might be shown mercy in the future millennial kingdom under the new covenant. Remember, now that it's interesting because I, <clears throat> I, I read a book uh, published by uh, a group, that, a dispensational publishing group. It's really good, actually, and they, the, they put out various books and whatnot. And I read that, uh, that book on the, on the plane uh, when we were flying, flying down and then we were flying back. I read the book on it. It was very good. It was on the tabernacle. It was very good. It didn't throw in a lot of extra stuff where it talked about, you know, the purple means this and the blue means that and the gold means that because that's never described in Scripture. It was all presented uh, very, very well, well, very well done. There was one thing, though, that caught my attention, and that is that the writer, whoever the, the uh, authors were, there were multiple authors actually involved, but uh, the, the way it was written was that um, the New Covenant was established at Pentecost. The New Covenant was not established at Pentecost. Jesus died on the cross for the New Covenant. He also died for all of us as part of the church and so on and so forth. The New Covenant has not been established. It will be established yet future in the Millennial Kingdom. So I thought that was interesting that that one, that one little thing was in there. But all, overall, I would say it was a very good book on the tabernacle. Uh, this mercy, by the way, the mercy that they're going to receive in the future, this mercy will be received by believing Jews who live throughout the, the thousand-year kingdom age, right? There's going to be believing Jews who are going to have that mercy shown upon them during that millennial kingdom. Now, are all of them going to live to the end? We actually have uh, the idea that there, no, nobody's going to actually make it all the way to the end. We have a visitor out there, a little kitty cat. Um, we're we're, uh, we're uh, going to see that the, the lifespans of individuals as recorded in the Scripture, nobody has a lifespan that reaches 1,000 years. The longest one is under 1,000 years. So it's my belief that, that really none of these Jews that survived the tribulation and are part of the beginning of the millennial kingdom are going to make it to the end. But... They're going to have mercy. It doesn't change this point. The mercy is going to be received by them during that time period. And I believe the lifespans are going to be back to that kind of time frame. They're going to live 900 plus years. 
Uh, it is equally true that all people who have been locked up in dis—excuse uh, me—it is equally true that all people have been locked up in disobedience, so that they might be shown mercy. That's an absolutely true statement. All of us have been. Galatians 3:22 20 through 26. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, that we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the idea is that there's a, that the law was supposed to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was supposed to be a tutor back then, not just today, but back then. Remember, uh, it was by, by grace through faith back then as well. All right, we're going to get to the next section here. Glory be to God. Chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the abundance, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen some principles on that the fullness of god is indeed unsearchable and unfathomable uh, who among us knows everything there is to know about god remember we're talking about the fullness of god do we know things about god yeah we do i hope you do i hope you've learned things about god under the ministry here and, and other ministries that you've been under that you've learned things about god as you read the bible and so on but the fullness of God, none of us understands him completely. Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That's just to give us some sort of a sense of it, right? Verse 9 is some sort of a sense of it. I mean, we can't ever come to fully know God. I mean, he is infinite. We are finite. Uh, Job 37.5, God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. We try. We try to understand them to the degree that we can. And this is something, by the way, that is very important in your Christian walk. Is to understand that God is going to reveal himself to you, and you will understand many, many things about him and draw close to him, but you're never going to know all that there is to know. You will never know all that there is to know. He's going to be doing things which we don't understand. Now, I, I can point to one thing right now that I don't understand. Why is he putting up with us? I don't understand it. If, it were, if I were the one in charge, I'd be saying, you guys, you're out of here. What a, what a waste. Of, what a waste of oxygen, right? I mean, you guys are just... Uh, you guys are pathetic with all this stupid stuff that y'all are doing. I mean, it, we're, getting, we're getting more and more idiotic every day. I mean, it's unbelievable. I almost don't want to read the news anymore. All right, Isaiah 40 and verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Right, so he, we, we, don't, we, we, we shouldn't think, part of what's going on here is don't think of God as just this really big man. 
I think some people have this view of God that way, and I think it's because of all the language. Some of it's because of the language of accommodation that we have in scriptures, describing you know the hand of God, the arm of God, the face of God, and so on and so forth, right? And there's all kinds of things you can get out of that. But we shouldn't think of God as this really big man who is really powerful dude, right? And we shouldn't think of him as like Atlas or something. Uh, we should realize it's, it's it's not like that. He doesn't ever get God doesn't ever get tired. Now, does he get tired of us? Yeah, that's a different thing, right? Again, that's still language of accommodation. He he eventually got tired of Israel, didn't he? Uh, but he wasn't tired, exhausted, and his his understanding is inscrutable. We can never what he knows we can never fully grasp, and that's the that's one of the reasons, one of the most, in my opinion, one of the greatest things about prayer, is there's something going on. And you have a a burden, and you lift it up before God in prayer, knowing, at least I do, knowing that you don't know all the details of it. And in fact, what you would like to see happen may not even be the right thing to happen. But you're lifting up a prayer, placing a burden before Almighty God, who has infinite understanding. And he's the one who's going to bring about the result in a way that we wouldn't necessarily think is what would happen, and it's because he has infinite knowledge. We don't. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts, you, knew, you almost knew we had to go to this passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your, uh, excuse me, or nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Let me read that again. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, and, and that's, and that's it, it, if you look at the if you look at the curve of your spiritual growth, you know I hope I hope it's going up this way, right? Some of sometimes we do this, right? <laughs> but but hopefully it's a, it's a it's a curve where you're gradually growing in the faith, right? It's happening this way, but it's always going to be so far below where God's understanding is that you can't even really. That's why this passage is really <clears throat> trying to describe this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, the idea is, you know, way, it's way out there, and you're over here somewhere, you know. You're never going to even be close. It's, now, that's not to be discouraging, by the way. That's not, what, that's not why this passage is here. It's not to be discouraging. It's, it's to help us put it into perspective, that creator-creature distinction, right? The creator-creature distinction. We should have that clear in our minds. This does, not, this does not negate the fact that we do search for God and find him, and that's what I was talking about earlier, Deuteronomy 4.29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. In other words, we can find God. We can, we can come to know him. Jeremiah 29.13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So God is findable just because he's just because he's God and we're not doesn't mean he's not findable doesn't mean he's see that's the problem we we have an we have a, a an amazing blessing as born again believers in Jesus Christ of understanding who God really is and we understand that he's a personal God right he's a personal God we have a personal relationship with him it's not that he's he's unfindable just because he's infinite and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways and so on, he's still findable. We can still know about God. We can know God. If we search for him, we will find him. 
the thing about it is, the reason I mention all that is because, in, for example, in, in the religion, false religion of Islam, God is unknowable. Right? He's unknowable. He's this, this, this thing out there that is impersonal and unknowable and almost an adversary in a way. If you really understand the Muslim faith, God's almost kind of an adversary, not an advocate. Look at verses like uh, 1 John 2, 2. He's our advocate. That's not language you'll ever find in Islamic texts because it's a false religion, because it's not really God. That's why. Uh, this does not change the fact that with God's help, we can fathom many things about him. That's what I've been trying to say all along. There are a lot of things we can know about God. Proverbs 2, 4 through 6, if you seek her, this is wisdom, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Right? So we can have knowledge and understanding about God. 1 Corinthians 2 6 through 13, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had, has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Let me see how far I'm going. I'm going to verse 13. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, let me read that again. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. In other words, what we can know about God is what he has revealed to us. You see what I'm saying? He has revealed himself to us. And what we can know about him is what he's revealed to us. Those things which are freely given to us by God, which things... We also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. You know, I don't like this translation, spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Combining spiritual with spiritual, I believe that is the interconnection between the human spirit and the Holy Spirit. The fact that God communicates to us in a, through the Holy Spirit, through our human spirit, which unbelievers don't have a living human spirit, but believers do. And he communicates through that. Now, Notice what it says, though. This is we can know the things freely given to us by God. Everything that he has revealed to us, everything that he has freely given to us, we may know those things. So that's why we should try to study and learn and know everything that God has freely given to us, right? That's what we should try, strive to do. But recognizing that, that he is the creator, we are the creatures. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So we speak about things that are unfathomable. You would say, well, why would you even do that? Do that? If it's unfathomable, then people can't fathom it. Yeah, but we're going to speak about it anyway because it is true. These things are true about God, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things... 
so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So what we have today, this is an even greater thing to understand. What we have today as part of this stewardship, as part of this dispensation, is we've had mystery doctrines revealed to us that even the angels didn't know about. And as we understand them and as we live them and as we proclaim them, as we are the stewards of this mystery, if you will, we're being observed by the authorities in the heavenly places. They're watching this and it's still, it's still an amazing thing. Even to this day, right, almost 2,000 years into the church age, it's still an amazing thing to the angels because it was never revealed previously. Sorry. The from, through, and to slash four concept applies to God the Father. We need to understand that. Hebrews 2.10 said it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. See, I believe this should be capitalized differently, but the idea here is that this is talking about the Father, for Him, for who are all from. Uh, excuse me, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. This is talking about the Father. It is fitting that for, through, to concept. The from, through, and to for concept applies to Jesus Christ as well. Colossians 1:16, with the result that by Him all things are, were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether. Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or all things have been created through him and for him. Now, this is talking about Christ. So we have one passage that's talking about the Father. We have another passage that's talking about the Son. Is that a problem? No, both are God. With the Son, it's even more interesting because he's in hypostatic union as those things are taking place. The from, through, and to, for concept applies to God the Father and Jesus Christ both. That's what we're establishing here. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Notice the, the for, the through, the by, all of this language ascribed to both the Father and the Son in this same passage, right? We shouldn't have a problem with that. Who is the creator of the who is the creator of all these things? Can we say God the Father is? We can. Who is the creator of all these things? Is Jesus Christ God the Son? Is he the creator? Yes, he is. And if you want to think about it in this term that the the architect, the one that was the designer of all of this was the father and the carpenter, right? The one who implemented it uh, was the son. That's fine, but both of them are the creator of all these things. Right? Not a problem. No, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. The Father and the Son are the creator of all these things. This makes complete sense because as a believer we know that God the Father and God the Son are one. John 1, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. By the way, that's hypostatic union right there because it's talking about the humanity and the deity of Christ both. He was God. He was with God. Both are true because it's the hypostatic union. Uh, John 10:30, I and the Father are one. And, that, and the Jews just love that message, right? Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him because he was saying that he was God. And they didn't like it. They didn't like that message. To them, it was blasphemy. Now, in some ways, I want you to realize in some ways, you have to 
you have to look at what they did and at least respect the fact that they, they, according to what they were believing, now again, remember they were rejecting him, but according to what they were believing, that was blasphemous. For him to say that he was God, that was blasphemous. So according to their faith, they responded the way they should have because it was blasphemy. But they just were, they, they missed the target. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, right? So their faith was not correct. But. Uh, this makes the oneness of the church through our fellowship with one another and with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ even more amazing, if you think about it, right? The idea of the oneness of the Father and the Son, the fact that all the throughs and froms and fours and all those things apply to the Father and the Son, we have a oneness in this church, capital C, through our fellowship with one another and with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, it's even more amazing. John 17, 11, that's the high priestly prayer here. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Now see, that's, think about that for a second. Jesus in this prayer is saying he wants us to all be one even as he and the Father are one. Now, what does that mean? The, the, the Father and the Son, are they always like-minded? They are. They're, they are always like-minded. The church should be. Is the church? No. No. But that, is, that would be the optimal, wouldn't it? If the church were, if the church were like-minded? Now, I promise you that the, part, the people that are part of the church that are already in heaven, they're pretty like-minded with God right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> The ones that are on this earth is where the problem exists. That's where the problem is. We've got a lot of people who are not <clears throat> as they should be. Um, John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, for, but for those who also... I'm sorry, let me go back. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, right? Not just for the, not just for the disciples, but for all those who are going to believe. That they, may be, they, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Um, amazing passage if you think about it, really, the whole idea. And we know, okay, so the church, at the time he was doing this, the church had not been established yet, but remember, this is all upper room. This is all not very long before the church is established, 50-plus days. We talked about that previously. It's around 50 days or so after he prays this prayer that the church is established at Pentecost. And so all of this that he's talking about here is relevant to the church, even though the church didn't exist yet. It's all relevant to the church. First John 1, 1 through 3, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we, have, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ see that's the whole thing the fellowship that we have is true fellowship 
if it's fellowship that we have with one another and with God. If we get together and we are not having fellowship with God at the moment, and yet we seem to be having some kind of fellowship, it's probably a, a little mutual, mutual admiration society that's developed, and we're all agreeing in our carnality, right? We're all, we're all, in light, we're all like-minded in our carnality. That's not Christian fellowship. We want to have fellowship that is with the Father and with the Son and with one another. All right, well, that wraps up our discussion on Israel. That's good. We were able to finish that. We will pick up next time on Wednesday night, Lord willing, rapture pending. Uh, we'll pick up our discussion about the church, which starts, starts in chapter 12 of Romans. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time of study this morning. Thank you for the, just the depths of information that we can get from your word. But thank you for the reminder today in this study that we need to be humble, uh, recognizing that no matter how much we learn, or how much we grow, no matter how much we can glean from your word as the Holy Spirit illuminates these things so that we can understand them, no matter how much uh, we mature in the faith, we are incapable of fully understanding all that there is to know about you. You are infinite. We are finite. Help us to respect that. Help us to appreciate all that has been freely given to us uh, and help us to explore that, to learn as much as we can know. Uh, you want us to learn all about the things that have been revealed to us about you. But we are creatures. You are the creator. You are infinite. We are finite. Help us to respect that and help us to appreciate that there's so much more uh, about you that we will, we will learn throughout eternity. And that's a blessing. That's an amazing thing to contemplate. And help us to understand what an amazing thing it is to be able to come to you in prayer, to offer up our prayers to you, the one who does have infinite knowledge, the one who truly understands all the ramifications of what might take place. We can offer up prayers. We can come to you with boldness to the throne of grace and lay our petitions before you and understand that you are the one who knows about everything that has to do with it. Father, we are thankful for that. We are thankful for all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.